At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Early into this episode, I noticed that there was something deeply introspective about Roxanne Munson. I suppose if you looked at her work as a photographer, the signs were all there, and the subject she chooses to capture and share. But the evidence was even greater in our conversation as she beautifully weaved the ongoing chronicles of her life. Her story, like many others this season, actually starts in the Caribbean. She was born in St. Croix to Antiguan parents, and as a young child, relocated to Texas. That point alone would be interesting enough as she tells how much of her Black identity was shaped by having immigrant parents as well as spending her early years in a predominantly Black environment. But that's the only starting place of a life that travels through Oklahoma, California, Japan, Ohio, Mexico, and now Panama. In this episode, Roxanne discusses what it means to reinvent yourself and your career in a new location a couple times over. She delves into raising and preparing her Black American third culture kids for college and life when they return to their passport country. She talks about the importance of knowing confidently who you are when entering unfamiliar spaces, as well as how this applies when raising those children. She also highlights the uncomfortable tension that sometimes arises when you return home. Everyone's story is different and wholly their own. But the beauty of listening to different experiences is that you can find commonalities. And I'm pretty sure you'll find at least one thread in the fabric of Roxanne's life that you just might identify with. Welcome to the chatter. So we're going to pick up in our latest episode of the Global Chatter, and I am here with Roxanne Munson, who, you know, here's the funny thing. When you are interviewing people who are in different parts of the world, trying to get schedules to align is usually like, that's my thing. It's like, once I could get them in the chair, we're good. But it's like getting our schedules to align because everyone's mad busy. So I am so excited we have her here today. I I'm I've been anticipating this conversation. And so, Roxanne, welcome to the Global Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad we have been uh, in communication, and I'm glad we are able to connect today. I look forward to having a conversation with you. And see, nobody can see her, but she's got this fabulous shade of lipstick on that I've got. I, I should have asked her off air what color it is, because I'm like, is that wine color? That looks really good. Oh, anyway. I'm, I'm gonna hit her up for that after we after we're done with this. But uh, so let's go ahead and get started. So Roxanne, I you know for people who are listening in and and our folks come from all over the world who come on the show, where did you grow up? So what's what's kind of your background story? Okay, my background story is I am first generation American. My parents are Antiguan. 
I was born in St. Croix and I grew up in Houston, Texas. So most of my childhood was done in Houston, Texas. I went to the University of Oklahoma for college. Uh, soon after college, I got married and moved to the Bay Area, uh, right outside of San Francisco, Castro Valley, lived there for two years. And my husband's job was what took us out there. And then it took us to Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's where I kind of say I started my adulthood. You know, I, I became a parent in Cincinnati, Ohio, and after Cincinnati, my life just kind of went international and then back to Cincinnati and then international again. So that's kind of like my roundabout. How long did you live in the Virgin Islands before you came to the, U- to the I guess, mainland, to Texas? Yeah, uh, I left St. Croix at the age of seven, almost eight, and I have never been back. <laughs> okay, because here's, here's the thing. You started the story so chill, and I'm thinking in my mind, that's like seven different types of communities she hit, even though she said her, her adult life started in Ohio. Because going from an island spot, spot to Texas, let's be real, yes, <laughs> and yes. then you went to Oklahoma. Maybe there's some similarities there, but it's still, I know, there's some Oklahoma-Texas tension, right? And then you went to the Bay Area and then you went to Cincinnati and you said it's so chill, like my adult started in Cincinnati. I'm like, ma'am, you lived in like a bunch of cultures before you got there. <laughs> Actually, here's what I'm curious for you. Well, and we'll get to Ohio in a moment because I know that okay. is very part of your launching point going quote, quote, international. In all of those moves, did you feel like any kind of cultural shift for you? I think probably moving as a child to Texas was probably the biggest cultural thing because I grew up in my formative, where I really remember things was in the Caribbean where everybody looked like me. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Texas where they thought I had an accent and I was thinking, well, y'all have an accent Mm -hmm. too. Like what, what's going on there? And, and, the division of identity, like, you know, if you're white, you're over here. If you're black, you're over here. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're Hispanic, you're here. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I really got to see, I didn't really know what I was seeing, but it was really just an interesting, okay, like there's not like just black people or I'm not accustomed to seeing this many white people. So Mm -hmm. what's that all about? And just kind of getting acclimated in, I think when you are a child of immigrants, Mm -hmm. the first thing that you're taught is how to assimilate, you know? So it's the conversations of you get in there, you, 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 you work hard, you prove that you're just as smart, you know, you, you really don't have opportunity to just fail if, if, if for lack of a better word, because you're one of the few probably who got the opportunity to be where you are. So you got to take advantage of it. And so um, Texas was probably the biggest like shift in where I had to like figure out a whole lot of things at a young age. But because of that, it's helped me in my adulthood. So I don't think we talk about enough that because for me as a kid, I was 10. The move was from the States to a predominantly black country. Oh, wow. And you did the reverse. Yes. (laughs) And 
I don't know if we talk about that as much as the sort of the impact, I think, either way, because it's it's funny, the things that you said that became a shift for you, all of a sudden you go from an area where people looked like you to an area where you've got these different groups. I think for me, the flip side was going, all these people didn't look like me. And then now I'm like, oh, everything's black. And then I came back for college. And then it was like, that was really weird, right? Because all of a sudden now I'm like, wait a minute. I'm used to being around all, well, a particular type of black person, right? Because we know that there are different black cultures. So yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's got to be interesting. I guess I, because I've always thought about it in my experience. I never thought about, huh, what is it coming this way? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you've already alluded to this, but in terms of, kind of preparing you, how did you feel that those experiences would help you throughout the places that you would eventually move to? I think I grew up with a mother who had a different type of life. And so as a result, when I say different type of life, she was kind of put in a box and she was basically told what she could and couldn't do. And so I think she was very intentional about teaching me, you need to know how to work with all types of people, but you never enter a space without having confidence in yourself. And I think she really drove that home with me because she liked that growing up. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, I have been able to adjust, pivot, engage with a sense of, I belong here. But I also think as a kid that by formative, like I said, my formative years started in the Caribbean, but they transitioned to the U.S., but I didn't have the layer of um, racism or, oh, because you're Black, you you can't do this. Because in the islands, when you only see yourself, everybody's kind of doing, everybody's like the same type of lifestyle. Everybody's like trying to make it. So you never really have these different levels of hierarchies that I found when I moved to the U.S. So I always entered spaces feeling like, I belong here, you know, yeah, I'm the only black kid, but my mom said I was smart and here I was. And my mom always fought for me. I graduated high school at 16 because Mm -hmm. she pretty much said, I'm not going to have my kid be held back because you don't think that she can handle it. And so because of that, I always felt like, okay, it's hard, but I can do it. And I think that's kind of the, the, the level of adjustment, preparation, parenting that I received based upon the fact that my mom was basically putting in me mm-hmm. all the things she didn't have. No, I can I can totally identify with that because I, I think when I came back to the States after, because I spent middle and high school in, in, in West Africa. And so when I came back, you're right. I, because I've been around seeing Black folks achieve, for me, I think I did have a little bit of a different perspective in terms of, well, I'm going to go in those spaces anyway. It doesn't matter who's there because, once again, I've seen people who look like me who achieve and my mother and <laughs> definitely said, you can do it. And so I can, and and, and uh, same thing, my, my parents were immigrants and I think that there's part of that too where it's just like, you go make it because we left what we knew. So what's not going to happen is, <laughs> You ain't going to come here and fail. That's really what it is. Because we didn't leave everything that we do for for this not to move forward. And so, okay. So, you know, we're, we're following your journey. You get to Cincinnati. And then there's an opportunity to go where? 
So my husband, he does finance and his company approached him. He, he, before we got married, he had done, uh, he'd worked for another company and he did, he did international auditing. So he had always done international type work, but always based in the U.S. And so when we started dating, he basically said, Hey, you know, I kind of, if we get really serious, I want to have an international lifestyle. I didn't really know what that meant, but like I said, I am first generation American. I love travel. I love um, different cultures. So I've never been, no. And so he came and he said, uh, an opportunity is occurring for me in Japan. Would you be okay in going? And at the time we had young kids. I had a two-year-old and a baby. My, uh, my youngest was 10 months at the time. What I didn't say to you is when I lived in the Bay Area, I worked as at a, a genetic company mm-hmm. and biotech company. And I was literally one of three African-Americans that worked at this company of maybe 200. And majority of them, the people in the company were Asian, you know, from Japan, the Philippines, China, all over. So I pretty much for two years um, really got acclimated to the Asian culture, the the community, the food, the the interactions between the different countries. And so as a result, when he said that to me, I became excited because I reflected on the fact that now I get to live in a country where my coworker from California is from. And I get to experience that versus, you know, just going to a Japanese restaurant or hearing about their different lifestyles. And so I was nervous, but what his company does is it prepares you. It, it takes you on a journey before you, you say yes. So we traveled over there, just me and him. We got acclimated, got to see, you know, what life looked like. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that trip, it was a week-long trip. I said, sure, we can do this. And and so we packed up our house and our two young children, and off we went. And that is a story within itself, but I will I will let you ask me a question. <laughs> well, now I know what the story is. How long were you guys in Japan for? <laughs> we were in Japan almost four years. So wow. um, my kids were 10 months and two, and we left when they were four and six. And so tell me, so you had a little bit of preparation having been in the Bay Area with coworkers and the people that you, you obviously knew and sort of learning a little bit about Southeast Asia and Asia through them. But as we all know, it's one thing to visit and it's one thing to have slices of a culture within your own major culture. What was that move for you and, and and I'm asking that question, both the, you know, the good, the bad, the challenges, the, the great, the highs, the lows. What was living in Japan for you? Because I would imagine up until this point of all the places you've listed, it probably was the most different. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you, you, you ask that question because overall, the Japanese people are a culture of service, mm-hmm. a culture of pleasing, a culture of... I will not be shamed. So I will, even if it's a lie, I will pretend to save face. And the Caribbean culture is one of expression and the black culture is one of like 
passion and expression and and calling things what it is. So the hardest thing for me was how come everybody's just always so nice? Like, where's your irritation, especially as mothers? You know, it's like, don't you get mad at your kids? Like, they're getting on your nerves, right? And also, it was the first time where I, although I told you in the company that I was like one of three, about 200 people, when I left there, I still saw myself, right? But in Japan, especially we lived in Kobe, Japan, mm-hmm. I could go months without seeing anybody that looked like me. And for me, it was it was the most interesting thing because you 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 see the stairs, but they're so polite, right? So they're staring at you, but they're not like staring at you. They're kind of like curious stare, yeah. and then they look away and and so for me, it was one of those things where, man, this is, this is interesting. But I think what being in Japan taught me was if you are not comfortable in the skin you're in, no matter where you are, mm-hmm. life is going to be so hard because if I got offended or if I did not do things because, oh my God, you know, people are going to be staring at me on the train or nobody's going to be looking like me or nobody can do my hair and all that kind of stuff. My life after that would not have been so rich because I learned so many things about myself, my family, my, my family from the Caribbean, moving to the U S my, my children, the type of lifestyle I wanted them to have my husband who just like me, he was in the, he was in the office. He was the only American and he was only black. So he was like, baby, you dealing with it and I'm dealing with it. But I think it was the most, I would say the most challenging from this standpoint, it was the first time I was introduced to a lot of different things that I didn't realize that I had to adjust to until I got there. Mm. I did an interview with a woman who lives in Ghana and she said something with to me, she's American that has stuck with me since Black American. And in the case of, of West Africa, in the case of Ghana, she said, look, often when I have Black groups coming from the States, when they come to Ghana, there's a lot we have to unpack, take uh-huh. out of our suitcases before we can process it. She was talking specifically in the context, obviously, of the history of, of West Africa and whatnot. But I, you, what you said just kind of reminded me of that—that <laughs> that there, there are things that we carry in our in our proverbial bags that we don't remember, and also there are things we pick up, yeah, right, that can really impact. And so, what did you think in terms of being comfortable in your skin? Because I, I actually think what you said is something really, really enlightening, and I talk about this with folks quite a bit. Is how did you learn to be kind of comfortable in that uncomfortableness, at least early on, and not not let it cloud the experiences that you were having or could have? I think what helped me was I am a I am a curious person by nature. I'm also one who I do not shy away from being people's first interaction with anything. So I realized that if I want people to have a true understanding of Black people, Black mothers, Black lived experiences, cultures that's not their own, that I had to be 
open and willing to be the the vessel for that the the oh I, I can't think of the word but I had to be a like almost a messenger so what I said is okay this mom probably grew up in this town and her interactions to black people were on the television but here you are with a small child like hers and she's staring at you you guys can't speak but your kids are attracted to each other because they're they're seeing their little selves. So what do you do? Do you shy away because she's staring at you, or do you say, um, like, hello, how are you? Um, and so that's what I did. I kind of like planted myself in positions and I also created opportunities for myself where I would get to know people of that culture, uh, um, especially moms, and I would try to find common denominators, you know, like what do you, what do you cook? What, okay. So you make this with ground beef. Here's what I make. And so I started to have like those type of interactions. And what I was blessed with was a lot of the moms initially who I was around spoke some English because I didn't speak Japanese Mm -hmm. and they wanted their kids to learn Mm -hmm. English well. So I was kind of like, oh, well, this lady is nice. She's got a little kid. She speaks English. I'm going to become uncomfortable. And I made it a point. I was like, okay, I don't allow myself to be used without getting something back. And so I was like, okay, if you want to interact with me, you're going to have to speak with me in a language that we both can understand. Cause I know you can understand and speak English. And some would say, oh, you know, you should have learned Japanese because you were in Japan. I probably should have. But in that moment, I wasn't going to because I was a young mom and I was tired, (laughs) but I knew that we both needed each other. And so that's what I did. And that helped me a lot. That let me know you have to create opportunities. You have to avail yourself. And once you do that, you can kind of like navigate things a little bit easier versus just kind of putting up a wall. Like, don't look at me. Don't, 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 don't. Oh, I hate it here. The food, the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do. That's what I did. And the staring's going to happen. I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> I mean, I've been around. <laughs> Sometimes the staring happens in countries where people are also black, which I think that's the part that, that like throws people the most off. <laughs> Because you look like a different kind of black. Thank you. I keep saying this to people. They're like, I went to Rwanda and they stared at me because I'm like, they know you not their black though. I know you black, but they're not their black. It's just, I said, let me, the best way I can relate it is whatever hood you come from, right? Whatever neighborhood you come from, you know when somebody is not from there. It's the same, don't, it's not always... It's not always we the same skin tone. No, no. Sorry. I remember growing no growing up, my cousins, when I would go to Antigua, they would be like, don't say anything. Don't oh, say really? anything because people will know you're American. They're going to charge us more money. You know, you already look different. You know, your skin's got that glow. Glow. And you smell different. Yeah, I was a Cameroon all the time. They just look at me like you're glowing. And I'm like, I sweat. They're like, no, you are, you are actually glowing. Even the mosquitoes yeah. know you ain't from here. That's why they keep tearing you up. That part, that part, that that mosquito part. Right? Girl. I was mad. This has nothing to do with nothing. But I got malaria and I was so mad and I got it quite a bit. I was so mad. I said, genetically, 
this is my this is my region and everybody's like nah but these mosquitoes are like you fresh though you ain't you you came on a plane you ain't you ain't the same blood we've been sucking. This is fresh sucking. Yeah, you, 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 you little different. You're a little oh different. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So uh, I meant to ask you this. By the time you got to Cincinnati, and because and, I'm wondering if this translated into when you got to Japan, had your career changed? Were you still doing? So what happened career-wise? Okay, so my career did change. So um I have a degree in biochemistry and I knew that it was not going to be my thing, but you know, I was, it sounded good, right? Biochemistry. (laughs) And my husband used to always say, girl, you should be a nurse. I'm not going to be a nurse. I don't want to be a nurse. You know? And he was like, cause I always worked in a hospital. You know, I was a surgical tech. I was a phlebotomist. I used to want to be a doctor, but then I just didn't want to do all that school. So he basically said, just be a nurse. I fought him. Got to California, started working in a lab, and I was like, this cannot be life. And what I will say, another thing about my mother is I have never, ever heard my mom say, I like my job. I enjoy my job. I love what I do. I've always heard my husband say, I love my job. I love my career. I cannot imagine doing anything else. So I saw the difference, and I basically said mentally, I will not be like my mother in that regard. And I thought about what do I enjoy? I enjoy people. I enjoy being of service. I enjoy feeling as though at the end of the day, I, I've done something meaningful. And he's, and so I went back to what he said after about a month into my job. But we were young and starting our careers and living in California, you know, that's expensive. Yeah. So he said, while we're here for these two years, because we knew it's going to be two years, please don't even think about changing. Like you got to stay in that biotech job, just figure it out. But as soon as we got to Cincinnati, I went back to school and got my RN degree. And so I worked as a nurse. So that time going from um, California to Cincinnati, how long were you guys in Cincinnati before you went to Japan? So we were in Cincinnati from 1999 to, um, 2005, January 2005 is when we moved to uh, Kobe, Japan. And I went to a two-year nursing program because I had already had a biochemistry degree. So um, I worked as a nurse. And uh, when he said, when he said, you know, let's go, it was fine for me because the beauty of nursing is you can just put your license on hold and for indefinitely. And so I, I didn't have the I'm trying to like move up the corporate ladder and yeah. oh my God, yeah. you know, like, like some of my friends, they, they wouldn't be able to do, they wouldn't have been able to do this and not be angry in some type of way because it would have been a hit on their career path, their journey and what have you. So I think I read and correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Is Japan where you picked up your camera? It is. Okay. What was the catalyst for that? I left grandparents without their grandkids and I felt guilty. I was like, I I have to be able to, you know, show them they're getting big and they're growing up. And so I just started, you know, just, I had a little camera and I just started taking pictures of them and they were, I thought they were so fabulous and I would send it to them and they loved it. And then 
remember I was telling you that I would interact with Japanese moms. So with another mom, I created, um, it was imagine like a, a play group where you did songs and crafts and everything was in English and the Japanese parents loved it. And there was a guy, his wife, they were, he was, um, Middle Eastern, but he was a stay-at-home dad, and he just saw us and joined us just because uh, he wa- he needed something to do with his kid, and he was a photographer. He is a photographer, and I was so proud. I one day I brought my pictures that I'd taken with my camera, and he said, uh, "Do you think these are good?" <laughs> and see, that's that's the thing that you learn in other in other countries because a Japanese person would never have told me that. This Middle Eastern guy, he was like, do you think your picture? But it wasn't it wasn't a question of, wow, your pictures are good. He was almost like, do you think these are good? (laughs) And I said, I said, I said, yeah. He's like, but you you can't really see them that well. The the background is kind of bad. You know, he was just that direct. I love him for that. And I said, oh, okay." And, you know, the sensitivity in you wants to be like, whoop. But I wanted to get upset, but I said, okay, let me, and he told me he's a photographer and he said, do you want me to help you take better pictures? And I was like, why not? Man, you're not doing anything but hanging with our kids anyway. Right. And based upon him, I got a better camera Mm -hmm. and I started paying attention and I realized that I was living in a gold mine. I mean, everything in Japan is photographic. You could, it could be a building, it could be a geisha, it could be a person on the train falling asleep. Everything was like, my eyes just kind of opened up to a world. And then we traveled a lot. So it was almost, I then made it my documentation of the world, Mm. sharing with people that I knew would probably never make it to the places that I was visiting. So it went from taking pictures of my children Mm -hmm. to becoming like my own vessel of truth and experience. So that's what Japan did. Y'all, she's still taking photos till today. So we're (laughs) going to talk about that after the break because I, man, y'all, you need to see her work though. If you haven't (laughs) seen it, we're going to talk about that. And obviously you leaving Japan, coming back to North America, and then coming to different parts of North America, which including where you are now. So after the break, we're going to pick up on all of that. This message comes from one of our affiliate partners, FlexJobs. FlexJobs has 100% verified job listings, career experts, and resume help. They've helped people find great remote jobs since 2007. If you're looking for your next remote opportunity and want to save up to 30% when you sign up for a membership, visit theblackexpat.com forward slash codes to learn more. All right. So we know that you, you were in Japan until about 2005, correct? Yeah. 2005 to 2009. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, that's when you were in Japan. Yes. Cause that's, you were in Cincinnati mm-hmm. before. You are right. Cause you know your story. Of course. <laughs> So 2009, did you guys come back to the States? Did you come back to Cincinnati? Where did you go? We came back to Cincinnati and we said we were going to move to a new area in Cincinnati. And we moved to an area called Mason, Ohio, because we wanted diversity. Because now we had an international lifestyle and we wanted diversity, girl. So we moved to Mason, Ohio. Ohio Ohio was the spot. Okay. And so how long did that last? We we <laughs> stayed there for six years and then we left and came. Yeah. And then we left and moved to Mexico. 
And it was that is impressive. It was six years that I I thought I was thriving. I thought I was like mm. doing life. And I moved out of there and moved to Mexico and got I removed those shades that I had on and had clear vision. And I was horrified at the optics. Horrified. And I said to myself, Dear God, I will never in life live like that again. So Okay, so let's let's have a little bit of transparency mm-hmm. here. And by the way, if you've ever had the opportunity to move abroad, have a good experience, and then come back, <laughs> come back to wherever, it, it's there. Yeah, there's a lot going on. What what was going on for you in those six years? Did you go back to your job, or did you go back to nursing? Did you continue the photography? Like what? Where? What was your mind mindset? I went. I went back to nursing because I realized as soon as we got back, you know, my kids were in school, and so they were fine. My husband's job was still his job. So he was fine. So here I am thinking I got to get everybody settled and everybody got settled really fast. So by November, hmm. I was back to work and I, I'm a pediatric nurse. So I went, I went to a children's hospital and uh, worked in a clinic. Um, I'm also very involved in my sorority. I'm a Delta. So I was involved in my sorority. And so I basically just jumped back in uh, and that's what Cincinnati did for me. It allowed me to just kind of pick up where I left off, just jump back in. But I think what I didn't realize is I had outgrown people. And so my conversations were different. And the people that I was interacting with, conversation was very stagnant. And also, I lived in Japan when President Obama was in office, right? And so for the first term. And then I came back for the second term. And I realized that we moved into an area in Cincinnati that we felt was progressive and great schools, but didn't realize there comes, there comes a cost when you are the only in a community, the only in a neighborhood, your kids are the only, and the things that you are silent about or you accept because you don't want to seem angry or you're overthinking things or you, your, your, your kids have been outside of the U.S. for a while. So they have to readjust to being around, you know, white people or different cultures that aren't Japanese. And so I did a lot of excusing of behaviors, which in retrospect, that's why I said, you know, it, when I moved away, I really got to see, got to see the people that I was working with, the people that I was parenting with, um, my kids did gymnastics, the people that I was spending a lot of time with, I realized that they were doing something to me that I didn't realize they were doing to me. And it was one of those things where it was, had me kind of almost nervous, you know, to, perfect example, I worked with, I was the youngest nurse, only black in my area, my department, and I worked with a lot of older white nurses. They could not stand Obama, right? But what I did was I didn't want to hear those conversations. So I busied myself. I would escape. I would go into a patient's room who didn't need me. I would eat lunch early or eat lunch late to avoid them. But if you were to ask me at the time, what was I doing? I would never have admitted I was avoiding conversations versus like dealing with things head on because I didn't want I didn't want to be like 
that black woman who couldn't get along. Cause you know, my mom taught me to get along with everybody, right? You know, that's my upbringing. You, you get along, you, you don't, you don't fight things. You let people just be. And so when I moved away and especially, I think what pained me is just listening to the, the level of things my children were unpacking on, on both me and my husband about the environment they were in regarding their teachers and their gymnastic uh, coaches and stuff like that, it really realized, it made me realize sometimes what we think is good, you know, because it's, you know, it's got the school district and it's got the nice house and, you know, you, you, yeah. you've arrived is not necessarily what's good for, for you as a human. Yeah. I know I said a lot in that, but, um, oh no, I'm, I'm unpacking it in my brain. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> like I got you. I'm man. And Wow. Here's where I want to go then. What brought the Mexico opportunity? How did you get to that point where you were like, all right, we're going to go back abroad? Yeah. Yeah. So my husband has always said to his company, if, if there's any opportunities that arise and you think I'm a good fit, more than likely we'll take it. This, this will tell you a lot about my husband. He is fearless. He doesn't let anybody disrupt his zen. He could be in a room full of those red hats and he will be so on phase where I would be festering. He's like, they don't have nothing on me. And so I say all that to say he got an opportunity with his company, doesn't speak Spanish, knew he was going to be the only one who looked like him, the only American. And he was like, yeah, this would be a good opportunity for us. And he knows I'm normally on board, you know, if, if I feel comfortable and my kids are good, we're good. And so that's that's how Mexico came about. You know, it was one of those things that his name came up and they said, hey, you want to go? He was like, yeah, we'll go. So let's let's connect this to the earlier question about, you know, where you responded, where the shades were coming Mm -hmm. off. What was it then when you landed in Mexico? So you're now international again. That made you go, man, I don't know what was happening in Ohio, but that wasn't it. (laughs) Uh, True transparency. Trump was running for president. And I expected all of those people who I had been around, who I had shared space with, who I had broken bread with, to be horrified, just like I was, because now I'm in Mexico and the conversations that he's having about black people, Mexicans, just just everything that was not him. I expected to see something, to hear something. And I saw support for him. I saw silence. And I just thought to myself, if I were in a room and somebody were fighting me, not one of these people who I thought were friend or friendly would fight for me. They would make excuses for me. They would ignore the situation. They would tell themselves it has no bearing on me because eh, he's not, he's not important. And because of that, it, I sat back with that observation and I really started analyzing people. I started listening to conversations and I realized almost everybody that I was in some form or fashion engaged with 
in Cincinnati beyond like my core group, my 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 sorority sisters and and people who we have the same values were just as problematic. And I thought to myself, what would I have done had I still been in Cincinnati knowing this? Would I have said anything or would I have pretended that it doesn't bother me or would I just go about my way? Because that's what I saw my friends who I just said I'm really close to. That's what I saw them doing because it's a different type of environment. You know, you just want to go to work and come home. You don't, your politics are your politics. And it made me realize that's kind of why we're in this crazy situation that we are, because nobody has the the strength to basically say, you not your silence is wrong. It shouldn't have to take something drastic to happen where you basically have to see another human be devalued for you to say, this is just not right. And so I, I say that because I was in Mexico and I really got to see Mexico and see what was happening on the other side of the wall, I was just like, wow. And I would have never noticed that, thought about that had I not been firmly planted in Mexico straight from the U.S. at the time that I was planted there. I think you've articulated something that I've, I thought about with that election because I was in the Middle East. So when I left, President Obama was President Obama and, and, and there was not President Trump yet. I was in the Middle East watching the election, (laughs) (laughs) which is also a fun place to be to watch any U.S. election because your, your first thought is, well... What, what does this mean for those of us who are clearly American? Yeah. And um, it's interesting because I think if I'm hearing you right, you moved to you had moved to Mexico after the election. It was right before we moved in July, right and he got elected in November. Okay, okay. so same, same, and. Um, <laughs> I have tried for years to explain what it was like as an American to watch the election outside of the U.S., irrespective of your politics. Yes. And I know this gets overused, but it's almost like watching a reality show. Yes. (laughs) And, and, And here's the thing. So, I mean, you lived in Japan, so massive time difference between the U.S. and in Japan, for me, Kutcher was about seven or eight hours, right? And so I could see, I could watch social media and I could see, and, and, and if anybody remember this, when Trump had Twitter, I mean, obviously he's been banned yeah. since then. Um, stuff would get tweeted late at night, right? And I, but the thing is, it'd be during the day in Cutter, right? And so I remember I would sit there and think, Man, this is gonna be a firestorm when America wakes up because all y'all are asleep. No, really, because he tweeted like two a.m. and I kept thinking, whenever they wake up, this is gonna be a trending topic. And I was always right because I was just like, and 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 it's like clockwork. You could yeah. sort of see the different factions in the country reacting the way you knew they were gonna react. Yeah. And I just kept thinking to myself, I don't know how much this country could keep up doing this because this is like, you're on a turbo level. And like I said, this is this is not 
a criticism or anything of anyone's politics. I'm just saying you can't be, everybody can't be running on 150 <laughs> every day. And that's what I'm saying. And I would sit there to really be like, these people are all, because you could tell what was happening in New York and Atlanta, and you could tell what was happening in LA and in Seattle. You could see what was happening in Austin yeah. and what was happening in yeah. Chicago. And I would just sit there and go, this is <laughs> like, this is insane. I don't know what's happening with this country. <laughs> But it's insane to see it. And I think even in our, you know, we just obviously just relatively had an election. It feels like it was 30 years oh ago. Oh, my God. But was, oh. <laughs> Biden just got inaugurated <laughs> this year. It feels like it feels like four scores and seven years ago. Oh, my God. Like, we'd have been through it. With plus a pan, oh. I mean, even if you took the pandemic out, it's like we'd have been through it. And it's only been the same year oh my gosh Uh, okay i talked to friends who were living who live in europe and who live in asia live in africa and would just be like what has happened like we're watching what is happening right you know right when the election was happening and i said we don't know either i know everybody i know everybody fighting but i'm not even sure if we all know i I, you know and God love God love my husband because he never allowed any of that to disrupt him. And I became, I think I became so impassioned. Like I became yeah. like this, this like vessel of shame on you, you know? And I became even more passionate about Mexico and Mexicans and the people Mm. and the culture. And you will not talk about Mexicans on my watch. And I mean, I would enter all those rooms with just fire because I was like, he's saying this, but you, you, why do you think your food costs this? Because, you know, that Mexican, you know, is working hard because you don't want to do that. I just became, I'm sure my husband at the time was like this chick. (laughs) has like <laughs> who'd I marry <laughs> my friends were like right she used to be real chill now you're a little feisty because when things become personal right I mean when the comment was made that all these African countries are as yeah. whole countries right I was in here first <laughs> I'm naturally sarcastic so I remember I was on Facebook and I said I see y'all arguing first of all Y'all need to get the number of African countries right. Some of y'all are like, there are hundreds of African countries. He can't say that. No, they're not. There's like 55. Also, <laughs> and then other people be like, well, he was only talking about this, but I'm like, he's still talking about African countries. So. Like, you can't, you can't just, <laughs> like, I just saw, I saw so much. And then I thought, I, I just kept thinking to myself, it is, if there's, I, I've ever, I've always felt that if there's ever one place to be, that's such a funky place to be from, but then to be out and removed is the U.S. Yeah. It's the U.S. Because I, I are <laughs> because who we are and our politics is in so, has its hand in so much, you can never not hear about us. Absolutely. And I, and, and so I, you know, and, and you brought up a great point. So Mexico is a country for a variety of reasons that's always in our news, right? And and you obviously you'd grown up in yeah. Texas. So moving to Mexico, how long were you there for? Because I know this is a relatively recent move from there. How long we were, were you there Mexico? for six years and we actually hold we actually hold permanent residency in Mexico. So how old were your kids when you moved to Mexico? My kids were 10 and 12. 
seventh grade and fifth grade. Okay. Wow. All right. You moved to Mexico. You've been a nurse. You you went back into nursing in Ohio. Did you keep doing practicing as a nurse or did you, did your career completely shift once you got to Mexico? My career completely shifted once I got to Mexico because one, those type of jobs are really for locals. And I totally respect that Two, They cannot afford me. And a reason I say that is um, nursing isn't a profession in Mexico where they pay well, just to be honest. And so I was not about to work the way they work for what they would offer if I were like, you know, now because I'm a permanent resident, if I wanted to check out having a nursing job there and I wasn't trying to do private, um, private practice either, like working for people privately. Yeah. And, and also (laughs) truth be told, I look at my husband's uh, international assignments as time for me to explore other interests of mine and, and, and live that expat life and, and, and do my thing. So it's never been one where I felt like, Oh, I have to work. I have to work. I've just always done other things to fulfill me. Okay. So at that point then, did you, had you continued the photography while you're in Ohio or was that put on the back burner? You know, I I did it, but I did it differently. So whereas I was going to festivals and I was doing street photography a lot when I was in Japan, what I did when I moved to Ohio, I started just photographing my children because they were into uh, gymnastics and soccer and stuff like that. So I became that mom, but I I was better. (laughs) I was better at taking pictures. And then when I moved to Mexico, it was like, wow, it it, it took me back to the passion that I had when I was doing photography in Japan. So I just legit just started once again, being the, the documentary photographer, uh, sharing my lived experiences, my truth uh, through my lens. And so um, that's what I did. And so now your kids, you said they were how old? They were fifth grade and seventh grade? Fifth grade and seventh grade. Yep. Okay, so your kids, when they were super young, lived in Japan. Now you've got them, they're older. And not that you don't have awareness when you're little, but now you've got a preteen and an elementary school student, right? Elementary age. What was their, you know, what was, I guess for you, what was the difference in sort of parenting them now that they're in Mexico, which may have looked a little bit different than when you were in the States? Like, what was their experience or what you could observe? You know, when we moved, my oldest daughter was very upset. She thought I was taking, well, she thought we were taking her away from her friends, her gymnastics, her coach. She had a wonderful, our last year in Cincinnati, I moved her from the gym that she was at to be trained under a black coach, black female coach. And that was life-changing for her. So she felt cheated. So she got to Mexico and wasn't really feeling it, but what I will say is we have always been a family that we talk and we just, as long as we are solid, we're fine. So my kids have been very adaptable. And so she just, um, you know, I told her, okay, you don't want to do gymnastics here because both her and her sister did gymnastics. They didn't want to do it in Mexico. So I said, okay, pick a sport. And so my youngest was in fifth grade. So she did like flag football and that type of thing, karate. Um, My oldest, she did volleyball, hated it. 
hated it. And but she was she was also she was very athletic, you know, because gymnastics, you're very strong. So the you know, I was like, okay, we'll do track. Well, she did track and she progressively got slower because she wasn't really practicing and training the way she would have if she were in the U.S. Because sports, they were just different. People there are very into soccer and that's it. Right. And they went to an international school that offered um, different uh, sports. But, you know, she did she did track because she was a good runner. And I basically encouraged her, girl, you got to go back to volleyball because that's at least a sport that you can do. I say all that to say she went back to volleyball, thrived, did really well. And my youngest daughter, she stuck with track and she was very, very good at that. So we found that for them, if you put them in something that they have interest in and they make friends fast in those event, in those activities, they tend to um, adjust well. So, and because of that, uh, they were comfortable talking to us about the differences. They were older too, so they could really articulate the differences yeah. between their life in Ohio versus their life in Mexico. Um, true transparency. Um, my kid, my oldest daughter, she was the, after her freshman year, she was the only black anything in her grade up until graduation. So she has always been um, okay being the only black kid. Kind of sort of for my younger daughter, too, but she had a little bit more uh, black kids in her in her class. But my oldest daughter, no. So it's just kind of constantly evolving. Did they both go to they both went to international? They both went to international schools. And I get that question a lot. And I I, one thing I tell people, if you are considering doing the international lifestyle and you're following people, make sure the people that you're following have the same type of lifestyle that you will have. And the reason I say that is I am an cor- I am a corporate expat. So my company is doing a lot, especially for my kids, their education. I am not paying those insane prices that you see that people are paying. So when you say, I want my kid to go to the school that your kid goes to, and you ask me how much it costs, and you say, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was that expensive. That is because you just probably thought that schools were going to be equivalent to the cost of, you know, public school in the U.S., or you didn't really look at those numbers. And when you ask me these questions and I say, but my company pays for it, it it feels a certain kind of way because here you were thinking, oh, I'm going to apply to this school. And then you realize, but I don't have that kind of perk. And so... Sorry, y'all can't. Everybody knows me knows I make a lot of facial expressions, but she has said, this is the part though. She said a lot, but this part, yo, when I talk to folks, especially about being an expat, we know there are different types of expats. Yes. And I said, some of you are going with sending agencies. You are a great example as a corporate expat, right? Another example, diplomatic corps, international development, right? Yep. If some, even missions, right? Even if you're doing like um, uh, missions, like a faith-based missions, right? That an organization is behind you and is providing the support, Yep. right? Usually from your home country or another country, whatever. That is different than if you decide to move to Mexico on your own. I bet you in those Facebook groups, I feel like your face is in those Facebook groups. Yes, right. Yeah, (laughs) And you're like, Oh, I want to take my kid and put him in international school. I am an international school product. 
<laughs> I can vouch for what she is saying. Them schools are not cheap. I keep telling folks this. They if are not somebody cheap. else ain't paying for look, if someone else is not paying for it or you don't get a discount or you don't get some kind of national like any one of the discounts that you may get for whatever yeah. reason, you need to think long and hard because you're right. Your your experience, and thank you for being honest about that. Like your experience is not necessarily going to be everyone else's experience going to any of these countries because you had support. Yes. 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 And 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 sadly, when I say these things, people get offended because they were like, oh, you're trying to, you know, tell tell me that I can't, you know, do it. No, that's not what I'm saying. I don't know your wallet, but but I know <laughs> that uh based upon what I'm having to see regarding the payments that are being made on our kids' behalf. A lot of people who are just like, I want to be, you know, I'm going to get to Mexico and I'm going to just wing it for a while and do uh, teaching online. That might not get you into the international school that my kids went to. But like I said, you know, we all make choices and we, but that, that would be my biggest thing. Like talk to people, like what brought you overseas? Did you just, and that's an easy question that I, I feel don't get, right. that people don't ask. Like what, what brought you overseas? Were you just wanting to Perfect. do something different or did your company take you over there? Because if your company took you over there, then I know the conversation is going to be different than if I'm just like, oh, I'm going to just wing it. I'm going to just go to Mexico for six months on my, with my laptop and try to like find an online job. You know, it's, it's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are you in my head right now? <laughs> I'm literally, I, man, look. <laughs> Someone had asked me once, I don't know where they were trying to go. They had a teenage daughter. She's like, well, I could just teach English and we can move to whatever, whatever. And I sat there and looked at her and said, first of all, you're not going to make enough money teaching English to put her in the kind of schooling she or level of level of schooling and quality of schooling that she's accustomed to in the U.S. Second of all, <laughs> you are moving with a teenager. Oof. And as someone who was a teenager and saw many a teenagers come in to the international school who got moved like middle of high school, yeah. that's a whole nother emotional conversation. And I said, third of all, do you have a budget though? Because this is not, y'all, <laughs> everyone thinks I can start a business online and the money's going to come in. And I'm, no. and I'm sitting there going, if you weren't entrepreneurial before you left, <laughs> it's really hard to just start it in the middle of Mexico City. <laughs> when exactly. You, you just, have, sorry, like you, <laughs> and I know that is a tangent, but you no. can't say this enough, enough, you. because I, I think it's Instagram and social media, to be honest. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And not, and not doing enough, not doing enough work. Like I have a girlfriend in Mexico, Adelia. She has her own, yeah. like she's, yeah, yeah. Picky girl travels the world. I love her. Yeah. You know why I love her? Because she basically gives you a blueprint on how to do life in Mexico, basically how to do life period, but how to do life in Mexico that I feel as though a lot of people don't look at because they just think, oh, I just and I just get up and do it. And then they get there and then they're mad, right? And and they come with their kids and then their kids hate it and then they're mad at their kids for hating it. It's because they didn't have a foundation. You guys were just kind of winging it and they don't know the language. They don't know the culture. 
and you have no preparation, but you mad that they're mad that you want them to do life. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And you mad the country ain't responding in the way that you thought that the country should be. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, but you didn't do, there's research and then there's, I saw it on social media. Yep. And I think a lot of people don't do the research and don't want to, I mean, here's the thing. There's some great coaches out there and yeah, you're going to pay for them. But here's the thing with them. They take out the work that many of us had to do on our own and just make it very yeah. easy for yeah. you. And so, so how do you think your parenting changed or, 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 or let me not say it changed. How do you think your parenting may have looked different than it did in Ohio. Did you, was there anything that you thought maybe you were doing in Mexico that you were not doing in Ohio or that you would have never thought to do in Ohio? I empowered my kids to be totally comfortable in their black skin. I showed them as an example. I talked to them. I, I made it clear. Like, I don't think I would have made it as crystal clear as I did in Ohio as I did in Mexico, but I said, check your friends. Will they fight for you? We talked about poor Bakari Henderson. I mean, his story broke my heart because I saw my child as the only black child thinking that these these kids were her friends. And I've seen friends change over the years and I fought and I said, you do not want to end up like that where you think you're with friends and they will not fight for you. And I think to the point where my oldest daughter was probably a bit bit sick of me because I was challenging. I was, I was challenging. I was hyping her up. I was talking about situations because my, I knew once we were in Mexico over three years that we would probably end her high school career in Mexico. And because of that, and I also knew she had a strong desire to go back to the U.S. to go to college. And I felt like I would be doing her a huge disservice if I didn't prepare her for what life would look like as a Black girl in America because she'd been removed from it for six years. And so I threw out every scenario. I know I was talking to her about things that I would have never even talked about in Ohio because one, it's like, you know, she's, she's young. I don't need to, we don't need to do all that. You know, she's, she's got nice friends there. They love her. I know the mom, you know, all that madness that we tell ourselves because we have arrived and we feel as though we're the accepted family, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I had really good conversations and I also pointed out people who they knew we as a family were close to who, we weren't close to anymore and why. And, and so my kids really saw that I don't, I don't take our safety and our, our blackness and our comfort for granted. And I feel as I tell them if, if I ever feel as though no one, the, the person we're with is not going to protect us. Um, I, I won't be around them because I need people who are just as into my safety as I am for theirs and, and talking and, and morals and stuff like that. So, um, I think because of that, my kids have seen a very, um, they've seen themselves differently. Um, they, they have conversations that are very diverse and very culture, culturally, uh, in, in depth. And I, I, I tell them to always 
share those lived experiences. I told my daughter, I said, I'd be so disappointed in, in you if you were in Mexico for six years and, and lived a full life here and you didn't offend Mexico or Mexicans when you are around people who talk about it. I'd be so disappointed in you because you know better. You're the, you're the change that you want to see. And that's what I kind of instilled in them that I probably would not have done had we been in Ohio. I've, I've been very transparent in saying, be the, be the change you want to see. So if you want people to not be a certain way or talk a certain way, especially if it's about another culture that is not good, you need to, you need to address that. You need to not ignore that. You need to challenge that. You know, when somebody says, oh, Mexico is full of cartels. Where, where did you where did you interact with the cartels in Mexico? Um, what was that experience? Share that with me. And a lot of times they can't because they haven't experienced it. They've only heard this secondhand. And then you just tell them. I, I asked the question because I lived there and I lived there for six years. And although it's not perfect, I also realized that a lot of times when people talk about the cartels, they're involved in activities where they're around, you know, areas that aren't safe for whatever reason. They could be wrong place at wrong time. They could have been looking for something that they shouldn't have been looking for. And so when you talk about the cartels and stuff like that, I never experienced it. So I wanted to know what did you experience? And I said, once you, once you talk like that to people, it changes the conversation because you've lived it and you're not telling them that their experience is not true because that's what we tend to do. Oh, you're lying. No, I would never tell you you're lying because you might have experienced a cartel, but I want you to tell me you have versus you saying, well, my sister best friend was in Mexico and Cancun and she was out at night and she heard gunfires and, and the cartel next day, somebody was, come on, you know, come on. Like, let's, 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 let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's, let's talk truthful. Let's talk about our lived experiences. And so. I had a um, guest on first season, black man, his wife is white, biracial children, mostly grown. He has boys. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, grow, you know, they, they grew up in, actually, it's really interesting. Same, similar story. His father, his parents were from the Caribbean as well. <laughs> his mom, his mom was, now that I think about it, I was like, this is really interesting. Anyway, um, maybe she was from Guyana. Anyway, and we talked about the talk, right? Um, and, and how early they had the talk. Cause right now they are out in, they could be, maybe it's in Thailand. Okay. Um, or maybe it's no, that's wrong. Ryan's gonna kill me. It's Taiwan. Taiwan, Taiwan. But he has been. He has been. To Taiwan. Okay. <laughs> like I said, his whole career, his whole adult, their whole career has been out in okay. Southeast Asia, and they talked about having the talk, and 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 similar to you, his children are a little bit younger. One's getting ready to go to college in the next year or so, and I think this is an interesting topic about how you prepare black children to in a certain extent brown children mm-hmm. if they have an american identity and and the truth is even if they don't have an american identity to come into the us for college yeah. and it seems that you and you and your husband were very intentional with your your older daughter yeah. has your younger daughter gone to college yet 
No, she's actually about to start the the college um, tours, the college tours. I will say this. I looked at my, I can only talk about my um, older daughter because she's the one in college. My younger daughter is a lot like me. She's very spicy, you black woman, black energy, female, everything. But I saw my older daughter so comfortable being the only to the point where she actually, what was interesting is she actually has dreadlocks and she loves, you know, her curves and, and everything about her, but she's just so comfortable being in white spaces or as the only. And she has never been challenged really to regarding what it's like to be around black kids really, right? And I told her, I said, there's nothing more awkward then when you are an adult, a black adult, black female, and your first interactions with black culture, black people is as an adult, and you don't know what to do. And we look at you like, oh my God, you know, like, why is she acting like that? Who is she? I said, you never want black people to receive you that way because you give off an aura like, I'm not comfortable with y'all. And so we talked about college and I'll be totally honest in saying we weren't, me and my husband did not go to HBCUs. We weren't hyping it up, but we basically said, you know what, after the whole George Floyd, Black Lives Matter type thing, like let's, let's put some in the, the hat. And so she applied to three and she got, uh, she got denied from one. She got wasted, waitlisted for one and she got into spelling. And I was, because I wanted to go to Spelman, but my mom was like, uh-uh, world's not white. I mean, world's not white, world's not black. You need to learn how to work with both of them. So she was like, you're going to a predominantly white institution. And I was like, my kid knows what it's like to be the only. She doesn't know what it's like to be a black girl amongst black girls. And she was fighting me on that. She was like, I don't think I... I don't think I'll be okay there. I don't think I'll know what to do. I mean, and the more she, the more she downplayed that, like, I don't think I'd be all right there. I hyped it up even more. I mean, I, I think if, if Spellman wanted to say who was the poster child mom for getting their kid that's undecided to go to this school, it would be me because I think I, 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 I did everything I could. And so I say all that to say, she decided to go to Spelman. She got to Spelman. It was hard because she doesn't really know Black culture, right? She doesn't know all the ins and outs, the, 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 the code switching and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what, a month in, my daughter is, is telling me stuff like, I love my HBCU. I'm so proud to be a Black woman. She thanks me for instilling in her the importance of showing up for herself and and other women who look like her and the importance of of having black girlfriends. I was like, you don't want to be like my age and you just getting black girlfriends? Like, girl, no, you know, you need, you need that. And I also said, we, our family, people we interact with, we know how to deal with all kinds of people, but 
it's also important to know us at our core and not have to perform and not have to be on 10 all the time. You know, it, it, you can't, it's good to walk around with your bonnet in your, in your, in your dorm room and your, and your girlfriend, your roommate, everybody's like, who cares? Right. Versus, you know, you go to a white school and you're putting it on and people are like, what you wearing on your head? I have done Good thing we don't do video. There have been episodes because it was done at 6 a.m. because somebody was in Asia. And I said, I just got up. This is a bonnet on my head. We're going to keep it pushing. Everybody's like, I got you. Just don't mention it on air. And it is what it, it is. is. It is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. But, you know, if you're, if you're raising kids in these international streets, make sure they're firmly grounded in who they are, um, make sure that they have conversations about what is, what is it like for me if I were to go back to America? Like would people, cause she, she basically was scared of being the odd, the odd girl. And I had to hype up, but can you imagine the conversations? Perfect example. She's graduated from school in Mexico. Her roommate is from Los Angeles, from Compton. And I, I told her, I said, you could not have had a better roommate because you two have such amazing conversations to be had because your worlds are just so different, right? And I said, you wouldn't have gotten that anywhere else. And so for and me- And neither of y'all are from Atlanta. So, <laughs> hey, <laughs> you probably could bond over some Mexican food and talk exactly. about Atlanta exactly. is very different. Like <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so I asked you this, you guys were in Mexico for six years. Was it another posting assignment that took you to Panama city or were you just, yep. you know what, we're just going to do <laughs> No, it was another, it was another posting. And I think, um, we all made it clear at this point, we really like living outside of the U S for various reasons. One being, yeah. I just think we just, we just thrive better as a family and as humans and, and we love culture and, and travel and, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who say no to these type of opportunities because they don't want to leave their families or their friends or what they know. And we've always been, hey, you know, let's do it. So when Panama came on board, it wasn't even a question of like, let's think about it. Let's go look and see. It was like, OK, yeah, we're going to go. And um, we, we we're a family of three now because our oldest is in the U.S. And uh, my youngest daughter is is thriving. Uh, it's, it's been interesting being during a pandemic because we are the type who like to go and do and see, but it's also been nice just taking things slowly and, uh, just appreciating the fact that we are where we are. And so I can imagine in Panama, you are still dedicated to your craft. Yes. You're still, you're right. Your brand and, and how, I guess with these last two moves, how do you think your photography has changed? How have you changed? I think my photography has changed from the standpoint. I now look at my photography as opportunities, as a way to bring opportunities to other to people who I believe in because I have a good reach. And I say that to say, if I interact with you and I have a really good experience with you, I will take documentary authentic pictures of you and I will share them 
and I will talk about you. I will talk about your experience, the experience I've had with you. And I will let you know that wherever my reach is, I am going to share it because I had just an awesome opportunity with you. And as a result of me doing that, I have been able to financially help people who would not have even been on anybody else's radar because one, it's, it's, it's one thing when you say, oh, I had a good experience with so-and-so, they made this for me or, or they did this or they, they have this type of um, activity or experience or what have you. And then there's another thing where you hear that and then you see what that experience looks like. And so I've told myself that if there's one thing that I can do in these international streets because I... I'm not one who, you know, I need the money or whatever, is if I can create opportunities for other people through my photography, that is what I want to do. I will also say this. I have not lived in a place in these international streets where people look like me. And now that I'm in Panama, a lot of people look like me. I also am not naive to the fact that the people who look like me are not thriving the way that I want them to thrive. And so I think part of what I'm doing now is just to collectively um, document and tell stories about, especially the, the immigrants who migrated here to work on the canal that are part, that are from the West Indies and how come life for them is not more prosperous based upon the fact that they put so much into the canal that is still thriving. So I, I think I'm part like, um, Vessel of Truth, historian, advocate, um, helping helping people that I believe in. And I feel as though that's what my photography has been able to do. And that's what I enjoy. I, I People always ask me, like, can, can you do this photo shoot of me, you know, by the water or whatever? And I'm okay saying no. I say no more than I say yes, because I have to feel. I have to feel it. I have to want to do it. I have to feel as though... Um, it's meaningful work for me. And I find that for me, the most meaningful work are the ones where I'm able to plant myself in situations where I'm able to tell your authentic story and share that with other people. And so that's what I do. So with that, I got a lot, one more question for okay. you. So what's next? What's next in your story? What's next is I am actually working on a, a book a photography type book. I will be honest in saying I have had a relationship with a man in Mexico for six years who was my personal driver, but he became, uh, he became like the essence of me in Mexico. And I just feel as though we don't have enough of those authentic type stories where two humans, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. He's Mexican. I'm black. I'm his boss. He's my driver. And just the authentic relationship that we were able to have and still have to this day. And I feel as though what I would want that book to do is one, show people when you're in these, in these spaces, especially when you're in these spaces of privilege, don't take the people that are working for you or who really are, are making your life their full for granted. Appreciate them. Treat them well. Expose yourself to their life and, and vice versa. And, and, and have a human connection. See where you guys connect on a human level and, 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 and talk about that. Talk about how those experiences has changed you and has helped you to be a better, a better human. And so... I feel as though for me, 
not sure what I'm going to do with it, but I feel as though my spirit would not be settled if I didn't do that. Cause I have six years of just amazing pictures of, of, I saw Mexico because of this man, you know, I got to go to places that I would have been denied access because the trust he had for me and the trust that people had for him seeing that he was an older Mexican person. And uh, so that's what's next. That, and, and being in Panama, it's, it's a bit more quiet than Mexico City. So I can relax. I can chill. I can call my pictures. I can think about how I want my book to flow. And that's what I'm doing. Well, I'm looking forward to that project. And I know it's going to be up when it's available on your website yes. and everywhere else. And with all our guests, I make sure that your contact is available so that people know where to find you on social media and on your website. But Roxanne, thank you so much for telling your story and just being very transparent in a lot of different areas. <laughs> I, I, I know, and I, and I know truly say that because I think that many of the things that you've said will be helpful to those who are listening. No, thank you for having me. I, um, I'm very, not hesitant, but I'm very selective on who I, uh, I speak with because, uh, you know, sometimes people, you know, they alter your story or they, they ask questions that you're thinking, that's what you want to know. But know that I am honored that you asked. I totally appreciate it. If you ever want to double, you know, come back and do some follow-up questions or just, you know, private message me and ask me anything, I am more than happy to answer your questions. So thank you. Oh my God. You say that I'm a, you know, I'm a roll back in with something. I'm a big one for events. So I will probably find you and say, Hey, this is a mom who's raised black kids abroad. Y'all we're going to do a thing, but thank you again for listening to this episode of the global chatter. As always, you can find us on the blackexpat.com and on social media, and we'll catch up with you till the next time. You just heard an episode of the Global Chatter podcast, a project by the Black Expat. It's hosted by me, Amanda Bates, and it's edited by Stephanie Fuccio. To learn more about this podcast or to learn more about the Black Expat, visit theblackexpat.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.